0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Shortly after the pandemic began in 2020, summer camp director Tommy Feldman made the tough decision to cancel camp.
1: We looked at the way we run program and that we couldn't create the kind of bubble that we would have to um, beginning before the campers arrived and, and long after they went home that could keep them Uh, We could guarantee their health and safety and the health and safety of their family that they're returning to.
0: How are things going for Camp Granite Lake one year later? Then the coming days will put state lawmakers to the test.
1: You can tell that the Capitol is alive. There's lots
0: of people here.
1: It'll be a busy week. We're going to get a lot done. It'll be a bit of a whirlwind to look back and see all the policy we got across the finish line.
0: And we announced the next book for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters.
2: Some of Colorado's largest employers offer a matching gift or workplace giving promotion to their employees. Using a program like this, you can often double your giving impact.
3: Companies like IBM, Google, United Health Group, Excel Energy, and Chevron top the list for gifts to CPR.
2: See if your company matches on the support page
4: at CPR.org.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. Camp Granite Lake near Golden, Colorado was quiet last summer. No kids hiking, canoeing, or singing camp songs. In March 2020, director Tommy Feldman made the tough decision to skip a summer. It was partly a business decision. He knew the camp couldn't afford to spend money on staff and supplies only to have the season cut short or canceled due to a COVID-19 outbreak. But he told us in an interview last May, it was mostly about safety.
1: We looked at the way we run program and that we couldn't create the kind of bubble that we would have to, um, beginning before the campers arrived and, and long after they went home, that could guarantee their health and safety and the health and safety of their family that they're returning to.
0: Feldman's back to share how things are looking a year later. Tommy, welcome back to the show.
1: Good morning. Thanks for having me.
0: We'll talk about this summer in a moment, but first, how are you feeling about your decision to cancel camp last summer?
1: Uh, I feel that it was still the right decision. Um, a year ago, when I had members of my family who work in the hospital setting coming home and telling me what the realities of COVID were then, um, it, it, we, we had a list of things that we needed to have happen, and they just weren't happening at the time. And I'm um, I, I, glad we waited.
0: Financially, how did you stay afloat?
1: Well, um, the, the biggest help for us was probably the payroll protection program that, was, um, that rolled out last spring and then rolled out again with another round this year. And uh, that allowed me to keep a team on to cover some of the expenses related to just keeping the, the property and, and the business uh, in, in a sort of stagnant state until things sort of rolled on to this year.
0: Right, because there are some expenses that you can forego if you're not hiring a whole staff, but there are some that are still every year regardless of whether or not you have camp, right?
1: Right. And and the, the other piece that, was, that we're really grateful for is that so many of the families from last summer who had put deposits down and who had paid a significant portion of their uh, tuition for the summer left their money with us um, and to use for this year. And so that really sort of bridged it for us. And, um, they're all really excited to come back for this year. And, and it just worked out that we had just the right amount of, um, cash for the business to keep us going,
0: um, through this summer. So this year, summer camp is on. What is it going to look like this year? You know, it's going to look pretty
1: normal and it's going to feel pretty normal for the campers and the staff. Um, What's been happening, and I think this has been happening in every single industry, whether it's restaurants or hotels or baseball or um, any business that is a service business, is the regulations have been evolving uh, constantly since the vaccines have been rolling out. And so almost every week we get updates from um, the CDC and from the state and from our county health departments that just make it clearer and clearer what it is they expect of us and how they'd like us to uh, behave. Now, one of the great things about Sleepaway Camp, and for us is that we're outside most of the time, and that's the whole experience. It's being outside in nature and being out in the lake and in the woods. So that piece of it, that whole um, you know, the risk of indoor transmission is just gone because the only time campers are really inside is when they're sleeping in a cabin um, with their with their bunkmates in their beds, and um, even our dining room is uh, is an uh, we can take the walls off because it's a it's like a um, open air tent. And so that's essentially outside as well. So for us, things aren't going to look too different. They are going to be in cohorts that you've heard that term, probably the cohorts of um, campers and cabins that are a little smaller than sort of the whole big normal camp, you know, all camp thing. And they're going to be with their cohorts most of the time, but that's, you know, they're not going to really feel it too much. I don't think.
0: And you mentioned that you've been getting these sort of constant updates. The CDC just updated its guidelines for vaccinated campers and operating youth camps that are um, with kids this, this last week, just within the last few pa- few days. Tell us about some of those updates and how it's been trying to plan for camp as this pandemic and restrictions constantly evolve.
1: You know, as a parent and as a business owner, this is what we've all done for the last 15 months. You know, it's it's things just change. And the amount of change that we're used to uh, managing and the expectation that it's going to change, um, we're just used to it. Uh, we, um, you know, the new rules that are coming out, um, this, to clarify in Colorado, the way um, the state and the county is running it, they're, um, they're the ones who have the final say. So What it looks like to us is they absorb what the CDC says, and then they make adjustments. Um, But we have a great relationship with our county health department, and they are doing their best. Now that schools are coming to a close, they're doing their best to sort of focus on us and give us as much guidance as they can. And, you know, my team and the staff that are coming in and the parents are all just used to rolling with it, and it's just (laughs) life. life with kids and life in business.
0: We have all been adjusting to a lot of change. How quickly did re- registrations fill up this year?
1: Pretty much instantly for us. We had to change our, um, our our session length from two weeks to three weeks just to have a little longer time a fewer number of groups. And so we've been full pretty much since the beginning, a um, few spots here and there, but it's been going great. And that's across the board for camps.
0: And when did you open registration?
1: Uh, in October. So we had to guess a little bit what things were going to look like and how vaccines were going to go and we came pretty close and parents have understood changes we've had to make along the way but we've we've had a pretty good um pretty good run so far. So it
0: sounds like there's been a lot of enthusiasm and I know a lot of families have been spending more time together during the pandemic working or doing school from home. Homesickness is always kind of a quintessential part of summer camp. Are you thinking about how that might show up differently this year?
1: Yeah, I think, um, you know, there's two parts to homesickness. Um, the first part is, you know, kids have been at home and had their parents taking care of their needs and their families just taking care of their needs and, um, the whole time. And I think the first kind of homesickness is when the campers haven't yet realized that there's someone there who's going to help them take care of their needs. You know, they're like, well, who's going to take care of my needs? And once they realize that that counselor who's living in that cabin with them is gonna be there to take care of them. That is the first step of getting over homesickness. And that happens pretty quickly in that first day or two. The second piece of homesickness is is what we all get. Adults and kids is just Mm. missing the familiar routine, missing their families and missing their family and their their friends from home and their their rooms and their toys and their space. And you know, that's what camp is about. It's adjusting to new food, new routines and making your bed and, Getting used to the fact that in a few weeks you will have those back, but that adjusting a to the new environment is what, uh, is what it's about.
0: Well, thank you so much, Tommy. Tommy Feldman is the founder and director of Camp Granite Lake. It's in Cold Creek Canyon near Golden, Colorado. In arguably the most challenging school year in decades, the students in Mrs. Sutton's room 132 made it to the finish line. They wrapped up a school year at Josephine Hodgkin's Leadership Academy last week. It was a year when they rarely saw each other's faces, and when they did, it was a flickering image on a screen. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine checked in with the students, now mostly nine years old, one last time.
5: Some of the things about the kids in room 132 stayed the same this year. They're still sweet and thoughtful and funny, and they like to sing. Kimberly's noticed the pandemic made them really close now, the way they play like brothers and sisters do.
6: Like friendly rough.
5: Amaya expands upon that.
6: We could get in a lot of fights, but the next day we could make up or we could make up
5: that... No. Hands down, what these students hated the most about the pandemic were masks, followed closely by remote learning, says Jack.
3: My internet was not working and stuff, and it was very annoying because of all the glitches and I couldn't
5: hear right. These kids are under 12. No vaccines so far. The fear of COVID is still very real for Sebastian, who had a family member get infected.
1: I've
7: had to hold hold my tears in because of the things that are happening around.
5: But through it all, the students gain new insights about themselves. Here's Kimberly. I get to know people very quickly. Like, kind of like, interact with people very quickly. She thinks that quality could help her in life. Her friend, Monsi, has learned. And
3: tough, like, things. I could do anything if I just believe in myself.
5: Leo, a soft-spoken sweet boy, says the pandemic gave him this realization.
8: I learned that I can be anything I want to be. Like a scientist, a firefighter, or a police officer. The toll
5: the isolation has taken on the kids, though, is evident. They tell me they missed high-fiving and hugging friends. And, says Rowan, swinging by friends' houses.
8: I've learned...
3: That I am a very social kid and that I just can't stop myself from hanging out with my friends.
5: But Amaya learned some of that downtime by herself that the pandemic provided is just what she needed sometimes.
6: I learned that I'm kind of social and kind of anti-social.
5: She likes being around friends, but likes time alone.
6: Because I could think what I want and say what I want without being judged.
5: Jack joined Room 132 halfway through the year. He started doing something he didn't do before, ask questions.
3: What I learned about myself is that don't quit, you know, I don't give up. Like, if it's too hard, I don't just, like, go, like, I give up. I don't do that. I keep on going and ask for help, you know, that's what I do.
5: The difficulties of learning remotely put some kids behind academically. Alone at home, they just didn't get their work done. As Leo says, he wasn't on task.
8: In math, I have 19 missing. And in science, I have nine missing.
5: Leo is one of most of the kids in room 132 who've signed up for an extra 12 days of learning that the district is offering to children. There, he'll try to catch up on skills that will let him advance to level four in certain subjects. Still, Leo's... A
2: little bit worried.
5: I'd forgotten how scary it can be to contemplate the next school year, one grade harder. The kids have social and academic worries.
7: I'm afraid that people won't like me. And I'm going to have a new teacher. And I'm
0: really nervous about that because I don't... I'm
8: not going to know how to... uh talk with new
0: people
5: many are worried about whether the friends they have will be in their class next year kimberly hopes monsey's in hers
2: if she wouldn't be with me in fourth grade i would kind of
7: be sad because she's my bff
5: jack has academic concerns about big bad fourth grade
3: um i'm scared of hard work like i um i forgot how to do division which is kind of sad yeah i'm just scared of stuff
2: of like the
5: math I tell him everyone forgets division sometimes. He's scared about which teacher he'll get because Mrs. Sutton was so fun. He names a teacher.
2: I'm scared if
3: I get her because I'm not really good with strict people.
5: What they'll miss the most about room 132 is... Mrs. Sutton, of course. No question. Especially, they say, all the help she gave them.
9: She's kind. She's sweet. She was one of the best teachers I've had.
7: She's an awesome teacher. I'm going to miss all the funny stuff and fun things
3: that
8: she does.
5: Now, students are planning fun summers filled with camping, swimming, and visiting relatives. And they all have high hopes for next school year. With no pandemic, says Jack.
3: I hope next year it'll stop, like just be
0: gone.
5: He says so they can see each other's actual faces. I'm Jenny Brindy, CPR News.
0: You can read and listen to all of Jenny's reporting on Room 132 through the school year at CPR.org. Doctors and
4: researchers continue to refine their understanding of COVID-19 and evolving ways to fight it. The CDC, just about a week and a half ago, finally came out and said not only is COVID spread through droplets, which is why we've all been doing that six feet of distancing and wearing our masks, but now they're also saying airborne spread as well, which... You know, for most of us on the front lines, I think we've known that for a while. But it's nice to finally say, look, we have to worry about the ventilation and the airflow in the indoor spaces that we're in. That's Dr. Camilla Sasson. She's an emergency
0: physician in Colorado who has been fighting the pandemic in hotspots all across the U.S. She's recently been developing a lower cost way to detect carbon dioxide that people
4: breathe out to try to f- stop the further spread of the virus. So it's um it's actually it's interesting CO2 carbon dioxide monitoring has been around for a very long time in a lot of industrial areas so greenhouses use it um I, oftentimes when i say carbon dioxide people think oh i have a carbon monoxide detector in my house already not the same thing. <laughs> so carbon monoxide is a byproduct of fire. Carbon dioxide is when we breathe in oxygen, we all exhale carbon dioxide. And so if you're in a closed space, just like we are in this studio here, um, what happens is that the CO2 levels rise as you get more and more people into that space depending on what your airflow is like, what your ventilation is like, those numbers start to rise pretty quickly. And so the CDC has said if you get over 800 parts per million, you're looking at 1% of your air being shared. So that puts you at risk for potentially, you know, getting any kind of airborne disease, whether that's um, the flu, a cold, or even COVID-19. And then if you get to 4,000 parts per million, you're looking at 10% of your air that you're breathing was exhaled by somebody else. Which is kind of gross if you think about it, right? So, but it's a—it's been, you know, it's really been proposed for the last year um, that we all should be looking at how do we measure ventilation in our spaces, and most of us have been flying blind as of late. Her CO2 detector is small; it's about half the size of a deck of playing cards.
0: The idea is people can take it with them and check the air anywhere they go—at home, in schools,
4: businesses, restaurants. All of the above. I think what we'd want to do is, you know, have this device be available as a low-cost option. So that's really something that we've been working with. Um, We got together with a bunch of parents, literally, in Lakewood, Colorado, and Golden, um, came up with the design of that, and then really said, hey, look, how do we get this into the hands of people? How do we get it into businesses so that they can feel safe with their customers? And they can show that they're a CO2 check site, meaning that they actually are monitoring that ventilation. And then, of course, in schools, we know that a lot of our schools are from the 1960s, the that HVAC system is probably not going to be updated anytime soon. So just by monitoring that information, there's simple actions that they can do. And what would those simple actions be? You know, it's it's really really simple, um, and it's really it's funny to me that I I didn't really know about this until January of 2021 which I'm, you know, I'm a doctor, I've been on the front lines. And so, um, but really it's open up windows. It's make sure that your ventilation in the spaces that you're in is good. It's turn on a, a, you know, turn on a fan and make sure that that fan is actually getting all of that air into a common space where maybe there's better ventilation. Or maybe it's just get out of the room. Um, You know, I use this device when we go out to restaurants. And if that number is over 800 parts per million, I don't want my kids who are unvaccinated at four and six years old uh, without their masks in that room, because again, I don't feel safe. And so this is just a way, you know, it's its a way to feel empowered and to feel in control of our environment. And this year has been chaotic at best. Um, so just having a little bit of, you know, ability to, to, to take control of my environment and to take control of my kids' health has been really helpful.
0: The detector Dr. Sasson and her team have developed measures the CO2 every second. Elevated readings don't mean a location needs to be evacuated, but she says it is about changing the way we
4: think about the air that we breathe. So, um, you know, we, we're partnering with Outward Bound. And so we actually went through with their staff and their facilities, actually, on on their grounds um, up in Leadville at base camp. And we went through each of the different spaces and said, hey, look, this is a place that has good ventilation. This is a place where there's not as good of ventilation. So when you guys have campers here, or if you want to do shared accommodations in these spaces, what can we proactively do to make those, safe, those spaces safer? So part of it is knowledge, right? Knowledge is power. And then the second part is we actually have an app as well that goes along with this that actually pings you and gives you a little notification that says, hey, do one of these four activities or just to kind of make your environment safer. So, you know, I think part of it is just remembering and just knowing to look for it. And then the other part of it is just, hey, look, again, there's a lot of really easy things to do. Um, Now, 800 parts per million is the number that we say it's that 1% shared air. It's probably a range, right? So if you get up to 2,000, which I can do with my two kids and my husband at home, then we're probably looking at that's a. Pretty big jump, right? So, probably a good time to say, hey, why don't we maybe go outside, move this meeting outdoors, maybe decrease the number of people in here? Um, But it's nice to have at least some ability to know that proactively. Dr. Sassen is now looking toward the end of the summer when children return to in person learning. Schools are probably one of the biggest areas that we, you know, as a parent, I'm most concerned about. My kid's been remote for the last year, and in the fall, we want him to go back to school. In Lakewood. And so we're working with the PTA right now to get this into, you know, into that classroom. So I know that when he's there, he's gonna be safe. And we're working with Denver Public Schools to get these CO2 monitors into their classrooms as well, too. So, you know, I think that's where CO2 monitoring has actually been started the most um, through the Harvard School of Public Health is actually schools. Because we know that there are going to be issues with ventilation. We know that kids are gonna to wanna to eat in cafeterias without their masks on. We know that they're going to go to gym class indoors, especially if it's the winter in Denver. And so what are the little things that we can do as parents, as just consumers, to make our spaces safer? You know, ideally, the, the thought would be that um, you could sponsor something like this, right? So if you have a school that wants it, you don't need 100 devices. It's portable, right? That's the beauty of it. You can just walk around from room to room as a facilities manager and say, hey, look, this is what's happening. Dr. Camilla Sasson is
0: an emergency physician in Colorado who's been on the front lines of the pandemic across the U.S., treating cases and educating people about prevention. Dancing, at least in public, has not been easy during the pandemic. But one Samba teacher in Colorado found ways to keep her students moving. Here's CPR's Monica Castillo.
6: The pandemic has been a time of transition for many artists. That includes Samba Colorado founder and teacher, Cabrina Josefina de Jesus.
9: We're really a community. We're a dance school. We're a dance company. But this is a community, a sacred space where you can come together and really share how you feel and no one's judging you. De Jesus originally grew up dancing salsa in New York City. She didn't discover samba
6: until later in life. When she was teaching Zumba classes in Colorado, some of her students asked her to also teach samba. That was the start of what she says is the first
9: samba school in the state. Then COVID broke up the party. Right before COVID, we definitely had more dancers in the company. We had more students in classes. And we had, um, every year we do go to Brazil to train. The whole calendar year was just, (laughs) it was just wiped out. Like many artists, the Jesus had to adapt to find a way forward. COVID definitely has taught me to be more creative as a director. You can take class online, you can study online, you can do a show online, you could be online and in person and do a show. I'm like, I would have never ever in my wildest dreams thought I can do that. And her studio
6: is not the only one. Some studios are offering a mix of in-person and virtual classes. Others have canceled classes altogether or are only offering either in-person or virtual options. But that rush to virtual teaching was a process of trial and error. The Jesus says she was burnt out from trying to offer too much, too fast.
9: I was so stressed out. Like the moment COVID happened, I like put like five classes online a week. And so I was on Zoom like crazy. Then I completely burnt myself out.
6: Today, The Jesus has slowed down and offers a blend of in-person and online classes.
9: COVID also has Taught me to push and to make new things, and it's not even about if we make money or not, it's just to provide more opportunities for the dancers and the community here in Colorado and now outside of Colorado.
6: The Jesus and Samba, Colorado are looking towards a bright summer. I'm Monica Castillo, CPR News.
0: When we come back, it's make or break time at the state capitol. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
3: Pastor Paula Stone-Williams is transgender and learned about the patriarchy once she transitioned.
10: There is no way a well-educated white male can understand how much the culture is tilted in his favor. Her book, As a Woman, is our pick for Turn the Page with Colorado
3: Matters. Read it and join us June 30th for a virtual chat. Free tickets at cpr.org slash turn the page. Supported by Wanabo, Love Keller Mendenhall
10: Smith Wealth Management Group of Wells Fargo Advisors.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. Colorado lawmakers are barreling toward the end of the legislative session.
1: You can tell that the... Capital is alive. There's lots of people here. It'll be a busy week. We're going to get a lot done. It'll be a bit of a whirlwind to look back and see all the policy we got across the finish line.
0: Let's check back in with Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. To find out what's at stake, here are public affairs reporters Andrew Kinney and Benta Birkland.
8: Many major policies that lawmakers have been talking about all session, even before session, ran on some of these policies Mm -hmm. are going to come down to these final days. And I think it's worth pointing out that the Constitution does require that lawmakers have to end this legislative session on June 12th, and that's a Saturday.
7: They could end earlier if they wanted.
8: Yeah, that's the goal, but I'm definitely planning on midnight Saturday.
7: (laughs) Sounds like a party. Well, I was there for the public option, which has been one of the big attention-grabbing bills. I've been following it for months and months. But what was mind-blowing to me was that this was just one of the gigantic bills that's trying to come down for a landing.
8: Right. Yeah, there's so much stuff. We've got a proposal to restrict teens' access to highly potent marijuana. Yeah, that's a
7: controversial one.
8: It was, but it's actually getting pretty widespread support in the legislature. But the idea had a lot of moving parts, for sure, in negotiations and then tax reform, criminal justice reform, a package of gun laws more than the state's ever passed since 2013, measures to help undocumented immigrants.
7: Yeah, then you've also got their giant transportation bill, some major changes around housing and renters' rights.
8: Don't forget the legislation that would codify some of the governor's climate goals. And there's been a bit of a standoff there between Democrats and Governor Jared Polis. And I know a lot of people are watching that piece of legislation.
7: That seems like the big bill that's fate is still a little bit of unsettled because of the conflict with the governor. But overall, a lot of these seem to be coming in like they're going to get some big priorities done, even if it's not in the exact form they imagined at first.
8: At this time of year, there is this rapid speed of legislation because they have this hard deadline when the session must end. And that means bills can die on the calendar. That happens every year. Another thing is some of the rules change in the final weeks, which mm. can even speed up things even more. Yes,
7: yeah, so they're now at this phase where like, it's a giant group project, so naturally all the work waits for the end, and now they're pulling all-nighters to get it done.
8: Yeah, and the, you know in the earlier part of the session, there's specific rules on when public hearings have to be announced and when committee hearings happen and how they happen. In the final weeks, those things can be suspended and a host of other rules as well, and so... The calendar, in a lot of ways, is made up on the fly. (laughs) I mean, even during regular session, there's fluidity there. But at some point, lawmakers hold committee hearings on the chamber floors and they're scheduled at the last minute.
7: Yeah. And what that means is that this is the time of year that it gets really hard for an outsider to keep track of what's going on. That's part of the reason why I'm going back into the building now. You know, even small stuff like there's all these amendments happening to a bill like the public option and they don't really update the summaries very fast. So it can be hard to tell what exactly they're doing. You mean
8: that there's a, a summary online. It has the bill and then it has a few paragraphs summarizing what the bill does.
7: Yeah, exactly. And, and if you want to be able to know what's going on, that's not going to help you anymore because things are changing too fast.
8: And I rely on those summaries. I read bills, too, but it is a really nice way to just get a clear idea of what a bill does. So you're right. You can't just look at those and think, oh, OK, this is the summary. You know, you have to dive in a little deeper. Yeah. I think for the public, too, it's hard to know when a hearing is going to begin. So I recently was listening to Senate State Affairs Here's Democratic Senator Julie Gonzalez. She chairs the Senate State Affairs Committee, and she's gaveling the meeting to order.
4: Buenas noches, everyone. Senate State Affairs will come to order. Senator Cook. Here.
7: Buenas noches. Simpson. What time of night was Senator this exactly? Cook.
8: Well, it started a little bit after 8 o'clock. Okay. Uh, guess what time it ended.
7: Mm, well, what, what did they? how much did they have to do?
8: They had a lot of bills. Um, measures to expand universal background checks for gum purchases, creating an office of gun violence prevention, banning businesses from providing single-use plastics, wow. producing styrofoam, a hate crimes bill. That was just a few.
7: Wow, that is a real, real basket of different uh, topics. I'm going to guess uh, 4.20 a.m.
8: Oh, wow. Well, no, it was not that late. <laughs> <laughs> it was after a little after 2 a.m.
7: God, that would ruin me.
8: Yeah. And the public testimony for the bill on single-use plastics, that didn't begin until after one in the morning. The testimony portion goes pretty fast when it begins after one in the morning.
7: Yeah, because no one's there. Um, It's funny because Colorado is unique because it has this setup where it's supposed to kind of guarantee citizen engagement by saying every bill gets one of these hearings. But when the hearings pile up, they end up happening in the middle of the night, and you can kind of ask, like, is this really fulfilling the spirit of that law? Like, is this actually citizen engagement if you have to be up at two in the morning to do it?
8: These bills did come from the other chamber the House, so they did have lengthy hearings in the Mm -hmm. House, but... This is a second chance for the public to testify. I've covered a lot of hearings that go through the morning hours, but usually those are hearings that start at two thirty, 4 p.m. in the afternoon. And then it's just a really long hearing that extends through midnight. I haven't covered a lot of stuff where the hearing begins after 1 in the morning.
7: On the other hand, though, they have opened up remote testimony this year, which has made it a little bit easier. And you can also give written testimony, although it doesn't seem to have the same weight.
8: Yeah, I think there's more options that the legislature adopted due to the pandemic prior to this, designated bills had remote testimony capabilities and you had to go to a certain location. And I personally think it's a great thing that they've opened up remote testimony. So if someone has internet access, they can testify wherever they are. I think it expands access because it's not always easy for people to get down to the Capitol. And Mm -hmm. especially depending upon where you live in the state, it's not very feasible.
7: They have not, however, managed to invent any more hours in the day. The other half to this equation you know, besides all the committee meetings and stuff, is that everything's coming to dramatic conclusions on the chamber floors, where you're seeing these last-ditch speeches, these last stands by Republicans saying, like, okay, looks like you're going to pass this. I uh, hope you're ready to live with it. And Democrats trying to make sure that they have enough of their colleagues' support to get things across the line. Like we were kind of talking about a little earlier, it seems like a lot of the big stuff is, despite a ton of amendments and some resistance and some question marks, A lot of the big stuff does look like it'll get done in some form this year. What have you thought about Democrats' ability, now that we're almost to the end, to actually pass their agenda this year?
8: I think Democrats are really flexing their political muscles, if you will. Last session was curtailed because of COVID. They have a very wide majority in the legislature, and Mm -hmm. this is their third year of having that. A lot of new lawmakers were elected in November, and people have... Big ambitions that they were elected on and they have a trifecta. They wanted to get a lot done. And I think they did get a lot done. They will have gotten a lot done. Definitely frustrating for people with different political views and don't agree with necessarily that democratic policy agenda. But we've seen a lot of substantive bills, even if it's not exactly as they were originally proposed. Like you said, they'll be getting something done, I think, on a lot of their major policy priorities and not totally done yet, because as we're pointing out, the final few days is when it'll all come together.
7: Yeah, that's right. So even though Democrats have, have figured out how to get their caucus together and what compromises will pass and how to plant their flag on some of this stuff, there's still the question of time because they do have a hard deadline before they have to adjourn. Mm hmm. And that means that Republicans increasingly have leverage to try to slow down or stop some of these bills. Republicans have different abilities to make those steps take longer, right?
8: Yes, that's right. The Colorado Supreme Court ruled recently that Republicans have the ability to request a bill be read at length Mm. so that goes back to the early days of Colorado becoming a state when not every lawmaker could read. And so you can request that a bill be read. Did not know that. Yes, and I think it forces Democrats to be really strategic about when they move forward legislation based on how long a bill is. Yeah, This just came up the other day on the floor of the Senate. Here's uh, Democrat Rachel Zenzinger. The motion is to lay
0: over Senate Bill... 271, all 300 pages of it to the bottom of the calendar, just in case. All those in favor
8: say aye. aye. Those opposed, no. no. The ayes have it.
7: Those no's sounded depressed.
8: Yeah, and they moved it to the back of the calendar because if a Republican had decided to read that bill at length, 300 pages takes a long time to get through. And that's going to push everything else on the calendar until the early hours of the mm-hmm. morning and then committee hearings start at 5 a.m. I mean, at some point they do have to pause and go home, get some sleep. I mean, they, they can't be in the building 24 hours a day. So it will delay things when bills are read at length.
7: It's fascinating because policy is serious stuff that affects people's real lives. But it becomes this bizarre kind of like war game at the end of this where Republicans can take their little chances to burn off a few minutes here and there reading an amendment and. Democrats, I would love to see like the Google calendar or whatever that they're keeping track of all this stuff on.
8: It's one of the ways that Republicans who don't have a majority in either chamber can really exercise some power and Democrats can try to counter that. I think we've seen more of the bill reading in the House this session. And what's interesting is a computer can read the bill. It still has to be intelligible. Yeah. But in the House, we've seen members actually reading bills. Huh. One of the people who's done it a lot is Republican Representative Richard Holtorf. He's a first-year lawmaker. He has a very deliberate speed, and so this is a sound we've gotten used to hearing on the House floor.
10: So I just think we need to know what's in this. So I'm going to take some time and read this. Um, it starts with the bill for an act concerning modifications to certain statutes governing the conduct of
8: so that, and I, I listened to about 45, 50, maybe an hour of that. And now, then course, someone else stepped that, in it, it, for a while. For you he
7: was, listened to an hour of that?
8: It was, yeah. I mean, it was it's in the Are background. trying to go to
7: sleep? <laughs>
8: <laughs> well, you know what? It was like close to when I would have liked to go to sleep.
7: <laughs> it's basically like we're at one of those car dealership contests where whoever keeps their hands on the Volkswagen Beetle for the longest amount of time gets to walk home with it. Whoever can wait out the other side is going to win here.
8: In some ways. I mean, Democrats have a majority, so they do have a lot of leverage here because they control the calendar. They have the votes. But I think it's a way that the minority party can really exert some power to potentially make Democrats pick and choose which policies to really focus on. And every minute they're reading a bill at length or an amendment especially in these final days, does have a a really big impact. So I think I'll be curious to see how much it's deployed.
7: Democrats have one way of fighting back, and it's the question of how late does everybody want to stay up every night?
8: I covered the legislature in 2012 when it was the final night of session, and there was a huge delay on the House floor. When a civil unions bill, Republicans didn't want that to become law, uh-huh. the civil unions bill failed and so did a host of other bills. Huh. And Democratic Governor John Hickenlooper at the time just called everyone back for a special session. So, huh. I mean, I think for a lot of us, that's the worst case scenario. I don't think anyone wants to come back for another special it's session. it's
7: already June and it gets hot in that building. That's true. So heat and sleep could be determining factors in what happens here.
8: I I think that's right, Andy. I mean, for any normal person, and definitely people need different amounts of sleep. But getting little sleep and being under time pressure and some of these things are contentious. Nerves can get frayed. And it's been a tough year, longer than a tough year. So I think the end is in sight. And I would say there's definitely been some tough moments this session. I think it's been a hard session, but I don't want to jinx anything. I feel like overall people have kept it together more than they could have. Public affairs reporters
0: Benta Berkland and Andrew Kinney and Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. Hear this and other episodes at Apple, NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts and online at CPR.org. Amtrak's California Zephyr travels nearly 2,500 miles between Chicago and the San Francisco Bay Area, and right in the middle, Colorado. CPR's Western Slope reporter, Stina Sieg, decided to take the train all the way across the state and back and bring us along.
2: Ostensibly, I'm doing this because Amtrak is in the news. Ridership plunged last year because of the pandemic, and long haul routes were cut to three days a week. But now, Amtrak is phasing daily service back in across the country. So that's the news hook. But also, I just love riding the train. The plan is to take the California Zephyr from here, Grand Junction, the farthest western stop in the state, to the farthest east, Fort Morgan, beyond Denver.
1: Yeah, round the corner up the stairs and put your tag up over your seat, okay?
2: Okay, thank you so much. Yeah. I put down my stuff at my seat and immediately head to the viewing car. That's the most popular part of the train by a mile. Everyone's in masks, but I can tell that Jessica Tyson is smiling as she hears an announcement from the snack bar. Wine. I can buy wine now. (laughs) She just spent her 21st birthday in Utah with her dad and is now returning home to Denver. It would have been faster by car, but that doesn't matter.
0: So I was like, I really want to take the train. I haven't been on the train since I was seven.
2: That's when Tyson's grandmother took her on this train to Glenwood Springs. She did that with each of her grandkids, all 30 of them. Her grandma loved trains. When I'm on the train, it's like, she's she's watching me. We continue east, a conveyor belt of sun-baked high desert floating past.
10: Our next scheduled stop, Glenwood Springs is coming up next
2: a small town station as cute as a button, mountains nearly hugging it, a hot springs pool beckoning nearby. Then into Glenwood Canyon, its lofty cliffs looming over the Colorado River actually inspired the first viewing cars on this route. We diverge from the highway and head into more canyons, far from any town. It's unbelievable, I've never seen anything like it. Vicki Breton is knitting, and looking at craggy walls, hundreds of feet high. It looks like a cathedral at the top of a mountain, just beautiful stone formations. She tells me that when she's in a place she does not want to forget, she says a prayer in her head. Praise the Lord, you His angels, you
0: mighty ones.
2: Breton hopes that when she returns home to Oakland and recites this again, it will transport her right back here. For now, she's headed to New Orleans. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. A few tables away, conductor Chris Lopez has set up shop. He's waiting for passengers to give him answers to a word problem he announced over the loudspeaker. Everyone gets three tries. Carla Baker from Kentucky is on her last one.
7: Survey says...
5: P.M. Yay!
10: Yeah! their chicken
2: dinner the stop stop. she gets a cardboard conductor hat she says her grandson will love there's no Wi-Fi on the train and for long stretches no cell service either. Conductor Chris says that's where these contests come in
10: I try to provide a situation where they can participate in the non-cyber world because they can't Google anybody
2: they can't they can't research the information he wants to keep folks occupied but also open them up. As you've noticed when I talk to people, it's not about the
10: destination. It is about the journey. So we're just trying to find a way to maximize people's experience on this journey.
2: And a journey by train is like nothing else. Obviously, you see these like grand sights. We're in the mountains now, and Tessa Heron can see dramatic snow-capped peaks off in the distance. But she's also into the train's more ordinary views— The intimate window it gives her into communities along the tracks.
9: People's houses, like backyards, just kind of little bars, little towns, little junkyards, graffiti.
2: Heron has been traveling by train for months, working remotely and stopping in various places as she slowly heads home to Iowa. She's gone from being someone who did not really take trains to being a train person.
9: It's a special uh, subculture, I think
2: a subculture of train devotees that includes passengers and crew. A train attendant, Tim Noel, traveled across Colorado as a kid on what was then known as the Rio Grande Zephyr.
1: And I remember telling my folks, oh, I'd scrub all the toilets on this train if they just let me work out here. Well, be careful what you ask for, because that's what I do.
2: It's one of the less glamorous aspects of his job, which keeps him on the train for six days straight. But Noel says he gives thanks every morning.
1: Mark Twain said, if you love your job, you never work a day in your life. I've been here almost 28 years, haven't worked a day yet.
2: We descend from the mountains, making it to Denver's Union Station by the evening. A crowd of people gets off and on. About 80 miles of flatlands later, we arrive in the small town of Fort Morgan, more than 10 hours after leaving Grand Junction. At five-something the next morning, I get back on. The same stunning trip in reverse. City, mountains, desert. As we travel along the Colorado River, we're treated to an unofficial California Zephyr tradition, being mooned by boaters. The train is a pause between the notes, one of the few spaces where you get hours free of obligation, time to just be. I'm delighting in it. So is Maggie Tracy. Like I brought books along, I brought work along, and I didn't, haven't done any of it. All they do is sit and look out the window. <laughs> Tracy and her husband are headed home to Nevada after vacationing across remote spots in the West. They're both in their 70s, and this was their first ever overnight train experience. Yeah, I'm sold on it. (laughs) Soon they've invited me to stay at their place sometime, and I've invited them to stay at mine. All around us, similar conversations are happening. People sharing stories and laughs and email addresses.
10: Thank you for your patience. Thanks for choosing Amtrak. Here we go, Grand Junction.
2: We're about an hour late, but no one seems worried. That is not what taking the train is all about. From the viewing car of the California Zephyr, I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News.
0: We love books here at Colorado Matters, and several times a year we choose to read one together. My co-host Ryan Warner is here to unveil the latest selection for Turn the Page, our reading circle, Hey, Right.
3: Hi, Avery. So what's the
0: pick for June?
3: It's a memoir by Colorado pastor and counselor Paula Stone-Williams. It's called As a Woman. What I learned about power, sex, and the patriarchy after I transitioned.
10: I knew from the time I was three or four years of age, I was transgender. In my naivete, I thought I got to choose. I thought a gender fairy would arrive and say, okay, the time has come. But alas, no gender fairy arrived. So I just lived my life. I didn't hate being a boy. I just knew I wasn't one.
3: That's from one of her TED Talks, which have gotten millions and millions of views.
0: She said there, so I just lived my life. What did that mean?
3: Well, Williams tamped down her feelings, got married, became a father of three. And uh, Williams had held several prominent jobs within evangelical Christian circles.
10: But... The call toward authenticity has all the subtlety of a smoke alarm, (laughs) and eventually decisions have to be made. So I came out as transgender, and I lost all of my jobs. I had never had a bad review, and I lost every single job.
3: So this book we are reading together as a woman is about her journey picking up the pieces and becoming an LGBTQ advocate and champion for gender equity.
0: So, Ryan, what did Williams learn about the patriarchy after her transition?
3: Uh, Well, there's a lot to that answer, Avery, but (laughs) here's how Williams begins in that TED Talk.
10: I'll start with the small stuff, like the pockets on women's jeans. Put a phone in there,
0: paper clip maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's if they're not sewn shut. If the
3: pockets aren't sewn shut, indeed. And a testament there to her sense of humor. Um, but this, this book really is about someone who has walked in both men's and women's shoes and how that can be eye opening.
10: I cannot count the number of times I've said to Kathy, my former wife, I am so, so sorry. <laughs> I just didn't know what I didn't know. There is no way a well-educated white male can understand how much the culture is tilted in his favor. So get a copy of
3: As a Woman by Paula Stone-Williams. It's out today. Read it with us and then meet the author.
0: Is that going to be an in-person event, virtual? Where are we at?
3: We're going to do this one virtually because of the pandemic, but also because we have just learned that more Coloradans can take part this way, Avery. Uh, You have a month to read. You'll join us the evening of June 30th. That's a Wednesday. Tickets are free at cpr.org slash turn the page, cpr.org slash turn the page, and you'll be able to ask Williams questions, will record the whole thing and air it later on Colorado Matters.
0: Ryan, what are these events like? Give us a picture, especially if someone hasn't come yet. Maybe they're a little nervous about the online platform.
3: Well, I think actually it removes some of the nervousness of meeting an author. I mean, you've read the book, and then I think it can be really intimidating to speak with the writer. In this virtual forum, it's really casual. And I think um, maybe it's just a better platform to be able to ask a question of someone You've just finished reading.
0: That's really exciting. Well, thanks, Ryan, for sharing your book with us. You're
3: so welcome. Nice to see Avery. Avery.
0: CPR's Ryan Warner with the latest pick for Turn the Page. As a woman by Paula Stone Williams, what I learned about power, sex, and the patriarchy after I transitioned. Again, tickets for June 30th event are free at CPR.org slash Turn the Page. And that's Colorado Matters today with thanks to our team.
10: Carl Bielek
0: Allie Budner
10: Anthony Cotton
0: Andrea
2: Dukakis Michelle Fulcher
10: Matt Hers. Michael Hughes
2: Carla
0: Jimenez
10: Pedro Lumbrano
0: Patrice Mondragon
10: Shane Rumsey Ryan
0: Warner And I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Our theme was written and performed by Kip Kipper at Coop Studios in Boulder. You can get Colorado Matters anytime on demand. Just ask your smart speaker to play the podcast Colorado Matters. We would love to connect with you. You can get online on Twitter. We're at Colorado Matters. Or if you'd rather send us an email, coloradomatters at CPR.org. This is CPR News.